Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Sunday School. We've had a few weeks off. When, when my boys were little, which was a long time ago, I would frequently wake them up with a joke of the day. And I confess these attempts at humor embodied all the cringeworthy traits of true dad jokes. One of these has stuck with me throughout the years, and it actually relates to today's lesson. So, against the strong urging of my wife and my own better judgment, I'm going to share this dad joke with you. Here it goes. A short fortune teller escaped from prison. Headline in the paper the next day read, Small Medium at Large. <laughs> I, I appreciate that mute. Mercy laughter. (laughs) Usually my boys would start throwing pillows at me at that point. (laughs) Well, though we're not told her height, in 1 Samuel 28, there is definitely a medium at large in Israel. Depending on the age of your Bible, you will find this chapter titled either Saul and the Witch of Endor, or in more recent versions, Saul and the Medium of Endor. I, however, would take uh, issue with that description. Although the medium plays a major role in our passage, I would instead argue for the much more sobering chapter heading, Saul, forsaken by God. In 1 Samuel 28, Saul experiences the silence of God and the horror of being utterly abandoned by God. The author carries us along on Saul's journey of desperation, depravity, and hopeless despair. It is a passage thick with irony and very thin on optimism. Ultimately, it forces us to examine the question, if this is what happens to Saul, can there be any hope for us? So with that encouraging introduction, let me pray and we'll get started. Dear God, we thank you for the gift of your word. I pray now that you would open our hearts and open our minds to what you would teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Because we've been away for a few weeks, I want to get, do a quick uh, review, and this review will be primarily focused on Saul and David. So the literary climax of Saul's story occurs in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel gives Saul a very specific command from God to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And Saul obeys in part. He spares the choice of animals and he spares the king's life. He says he wants to offer a a special sacrifice to God and is consenting to the will of the people by keeping the king alive. So Samuel pronounces judgment on Saul. In 1 Samuel 15, 23, it says this, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel anoints David as king, and David is in kind of this weird situation. He's been anointed as king, but Saul is still alive. And so uh, what we have in the next several chapters of 1 Samuel is this comparison between David and Saul. In 1 Samuel 24 and 26, David shows great faith in God's providence. And these are chapters that Jared... Jared taught us, and he emphasized that idea of David trusting and obeying. David was trusting in God's providence, and he was obeying God's commands. 
In 1 Samuel 24, Saul walks into a cave where David and his men are hiding out. And David lets him live, even though some of his men said, this is our chance, let's kill him. In 1 Samuel 26, Saul and his men are in a deep sleep and and David has yet another chance to kill him. But David responds with this beautiful summation of his trust in God's providence. And this is from 1 Samuel 26, verses 10 and 11. David says this, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David shows this great faith until he doesn't. In 1 Samuel 27, that Dan taught us the last time we were together, we have this candid example of how Scripture reveals human weaknesses, even of its greatest heroes. David's faith gives way to a lack of trust. And in 1 Samuel 27, in the very first verse, it says this, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Again, no longer trusting in God's providence, but looking inward to himself. David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. So he seeks refuge with Achish, Achish the king of Gath. And this is the Philistines. And he plays this dangerous game of deception. He's telling Achish, yes, I'm doing raids on the Israelites. When in fact he was doing raids on the Canaanites. In 1 Samuel 28 verses 1 and 2, we have kind of the end of this. And again, this is what... Dan taught us, David's bluff gets called. Achish tells, uh, tells David he expects him to fight with the Philistines against the Israelites. And David gives this kind of non-committal commitment. Sure, you're going to be able to see what I can do. Achish takes it more favorably for himself, and he promotes David to be his bodyguard for life. And we're left with this cliffhanger at the end of verse 2. Is David, the anointed king of Israel, actually going to fight against the Israelites? But the author leaves us with this cliffhanger because he has bigger fish to fry. Now he wants to go back and talk about Saul. Um, Normally, I would read the entire chapter, but I think this teaches better going section by section by section. So that's what I'm going to do. I wanted to tell you that besides the information that I got from many, many commentaries and listening to lots of sermons, there was one particular sermon given by a guy named Mark Gibson who was at Reformed Presbyterian Church in Beaumont, Texas, and I found it particularly insightful and particularly useful in my preparation. So, we go section by section. Now, in front of you there, you have, you have my outline and you have the, the scripture there. If you yank off the top page, you can have the scripture in front of you and follow along in the outline if you desire to do that. So, our first section is just one verse. It's verse 3. So 1 Samuel 28, verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put out the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Samuel's dead. Well, we knew Samuel was dead, because Sean taught us that back in 1 Samuel 25. These are almost the exact same words. But we need to be reminded, because it's important to remember at this, at, at this, in this particular chapter... That Samuel is dead. And Sean reminded us of some very important things about Samuel, which are important for us to keep in mind right now. He reminded us that Samuel was a judge. He was a prophet. 
He was an anointer, a counselor, and mentor of kings. In other words, he was God's man in Israel at that time. Now, we get some new information also in that verse. It said, Saul had put out the mediums and necromancers out of the land. I gave you two verses, one from Deuteronomy and one from Leviticus. And this is the law regarding um, the uh, idea of divination and sorcerers and, and people, necromancers. And in, in the Deuteronomy uh, passage, what we have is this idea that divination is an abomination to the Lord. Those who practice divination are an abomination to the Lord. And in the Leviticus cha- uh, passage, it tells us, stay away from this. God's people are to stay away from this idea of divination. And, and um, one thing that's important, when, when you have this idea of Saul had put out the mediums, what that idea of put out was, he didn't bring them to the border and gently say, we'd really like you guys to go. What he said was, you leave or you're executed. That's what this idea of being put out. So Saul had done that. Now, at the time, he did that, and we don't know exactly when that occurred, but he was following God's command and God's law at that time. So let's go to verse 4 through 6. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all of Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. So, now pull out your little handy-duty map that I gave you. You'll see on this map, down in the lower left-hand corner, these are the five city-states of the Philistines. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath, okay? And in this particular occasion, the kings of those five Philistine city-states had all gotten their armies together, and they had marched right up the side of Israel, and they had put themselves in this valley right here just south of Shunem. And this valley was a very important strategic piece of ground. First of all, it was a major trade route going through there. Second, we remember from um, our previous study, the Philistines had chariots. Chariots operate better on flat land than they do in mountainous region. So it was a good place for them to do battle. And the third thing, this area would actually separate the most northern parts of Israel from the southern parts of Israel. So uh, these guys had taken up a very strategic place of land. This was not something that Saul could ignore. He had to fight against them because otherwise they could totally cut off Israel from all trade and from all transportation. So Saul gathers his troops in the foothills just north of Gilboa. And again, he would, he would want to be in the foothills because that's more strategic place for him to do battle than the flat land. And this is not set up to be some kind of minor skirmish. This is set up to be an all-out war for territory. And again, as I said, Saul can't ignore them because of their positioning. Now, we know that Saul's a seasoned military commander, and he looks out over the situation, and in verse 5, we're told his assessment of the situation because it says, his heart trembled greatly. He was scared to death by what he saw. He looked out over on their troops. He saw their positioning. He looked at his troops, and he was scared to death. Now, fear 
is going to be a major theme throughout this entire chapter. I may not highlight it every time we come across it, but just make note of it in your mind. It's a, it's a very major theme. So what does Saul do? He inquires of the Lord, and you kind of think, wow, this is great. This is the right thing for him to do. But um, you'll know that this is not Saul's normal uh, modus, modus of operation. This is not his normal practice. There's no mention of him ever seeking God's guidance when he was chasing David all around, but only now when he's in this frightful pan- panic. And the language suggested here, this idea of him inquiring of the Lord, is not so much of him seeking God as he was seeking information. He's looking for military intelligence. He's wondering, how can I win this battle even though I have all of these odds against me? And in verse 6, we get these very sobering words. What does it say there? The Lord did not answer him. He inquired of the Lord, and the Lord did not answer him. And it gives us three, three means by which the Lord can, would communicate with people at that time. First, dreams, a common form of prophetic communication with kings. Second, the Urim. This was the, uh, used by the priests, the Urim and the Thummim, used by the priests to determine the will of God. But if you remember back in 1 Samuel 22, uh, Saul had killed all the priests. Okay? One priest escaped, Abiathar. And what did he escape with? He escaped with the ephod. And what was in the ephod? The Urim. Okay? And where did he go? He went to David. So the strong implication of all of this is that David has the Urim. And, and, and that, again, is another way that the Lord didn't, could not communicate with Saul at that time. And then through prophets. Well, we were told, again, Samuel was dead. So there's no prophets. Verse 7, then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to, go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a medium of, at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and he said, divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. In this desperate act, uh, in an act of desperation, Saul seeks answers from a source he knows is forbidden. He asks his people to find him a medium. Now, you might think, 
because Saul had put out all the mediums and necromancers out of, out of the land, you might think that this might have been a difficult task for them. Maybe we'll get a committee together. This is going to take a while, Saul. We're going to have to search for one. But no, the indication that we get from Scripture here is they knew immediately where to go. Okay? And what do they say? Oh, sure. There's a medium right up here in Endor, not too far away. And if, again, if you look at your map, you can see where Endor is. And you know where Shunem is, and you know where the Philistine army is. And what Saul was going to have to do is he was going to have to do an end, round, end run around the army of the Philistines to get to Endor. And what I'm told from my reading, this, is, this was about six miles that he had to go, about ten kilometers. Now, uh, um, they tell him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. Now, most of you all are too, too young to remember the TV show Bewitched. Right? I remember it. I'm old enough to remember it. But there were several main characters in this TV show of Bewitched. There was Samantha, who was a witch. She was married to Darren, who was a mere mortal. And one recurring character was Samantha's mother. Does anybody remember the name of Samantha's mother? Andorra. That's right. Okay. Now, if you believe everything you read on the internet, which the internet's always right, correct? (laughs) Well... And Dora, supposedly from the writers, was a weird shout-out to 1 Samuel 28. And they talk about in the series, it's, it's often mentioned that Endora had lived a very, very long time. And so the idea of the writers was that Endora was actually the witch of Endor. Now, again, that's just a sidelight. That's just in case you're on Jeopardy someday, you'll, you'll know the answer to that question. But, but there was a medium in Endor. Now, Saul desires to inquire of her. And it's the same language that we had before when it said Saul inquired of the Lord. He's just seeking information. He has no qualms where or who he gets his information from. And so he heads off to Endor and he's taking risk born of desperation, exhibiting both fear and shame. He's in disguise and he goes at night. He doesn't want anybody to see him. So, Saul and the medium have this surreal conversation back and forth of great irony. And it's humorous almost if it wasn't so tragic. Saul says, bring up for me whomever I shall name. The medium responds, surely, she doesn't know she's talking to Saul. She says, surely you know what Saul has done. Basically saying, are you a spy trying to get me killed? And Saul, at this point, you would think that he would be overcome by the fact that he's being convicted by a medium of his own actions. He knows that this is an abomination before the Lord. You would think that at that point he would stop and say, I know this is wrong. I'm going to turn around. I am not going to pursue this anymore. But instead, he goes the other way. And you just want to tackle him. You'd want to shut him up. And what does he say? He says this, as Yahweh lives, no punishment shall come upon you. He's swearing by the covenant name of the Lord that this thing that she's doing that is clearly an abomination to God is going to be okay. And you just, that level that Saul goes to there is, is, is unbelievable. He promises in the name of the Lord that she'll be okay. Now back in chapter 15, and I, w- I was fortunate enough to cheat, Uh, to teach chapter 15, there was this strange thing that Samuel said as part of his judgment 
uh, on Saul. And, he's, and he made this comparison. He said, for rebellion, what Saul had done regarding the Amalekites is as the sin of divination, what Saul is about to do with this medium. And this comparison makes a lot more sense now than it did then. So the medium, she's curiously comforted by Saul's assurances here. And she goes, okay, let's go. Whom shall I bring up? And Saul says, bring up Samuel. Now, between, in verse 11 to verse 12, between bring up Samuel and when the woman saw Samuel, we purposely get nothing to satisfy our curiosity regarding how does she do that, okay? There's no mention of a crystal ball. There's no mention of tea leaves, a fire pit, or incantations. There's nothing for us to focus on the method of sin, but to rather we need to focus on the tragedy of sin. The medium, when this apparition appears, she seems frightened by it, and she becomes aware of Saul's deception at that time. And perhaps she's not used to anything really happening when she goes through her incantations. If you remember the movie Ghost, and again, it's an older movie, but um, Whoopi Goldberg plays this medium named Otome Brown, and she was a total phony, of course. But when, when Sam, who had passed away, actually tries to communicate through her, it scared her to death. And that's the idea that we get kind of with this medium of Endor, this idea of this apparition actually appears and she doesn't know what to do with that because that's never ha- actually happened to her before. She was just making up things. Um, so, ironically, Saul tries to calm her fears. Saul, the guy who is afraid of everything and who we'll see throughout this whole chapter, is terrified by all of these things that happen. He says to her, don't be afraid. Tell me what you see. And so she describes what she sees and Saul is assured that this is Samuel. And he bows down in some kind of perverted act of reference, reverence. He cannot see Samuel. He's only uh, uh, going on what the medium says, but he can hear Samuel. So we go on, verse 15 through 20. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress For the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, What then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear. Because of the words of Samuel. Samuel asks Saul two piercing questions. The first one is, why did you disturb me? And Saul's very honest. I'm in distress. God has turned away from me and he answers me more, no, no more by dreams or by prophets. Now, can you remember before when we were talking about how 
God did not communicate with Saul. There were three things that he said. There was dreams, prophets, and one other thing. Do you remember what that was? The room, right. He leaves that out this time, and you kind of wonder, maybe he didn't want to remind Samuel that he had killed all the priests. (laughs) That could have been his reasoning there. So he just says, no more by dreams or prophets. Saul is desperate to know information. But what you find here, there is nothing about um, sorrow for his sin or any kind of idea of repentance. Samuel, second question. Why then do you ask me? Because the Lord has turned from you and has become your enemy. Instead of relieving Saul's distress, Samuel pronounces haunting words of abandonment. Often the Old Testament prophets would give these these judgments, these prophecies of judgments on the people. But then that was followed by a call for repentance. But we don't get that here in Saul's case. What we get is the idea that Saul has been utterly forsaken. There's no call to repentance from Samuel because that is not what Saul is seeking. Samuel reiterates and expands on the former judgment that he had pronounced. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. He reminds Saul of his sin regarding the Amalek. But he also gives him some new information. He says, the kingdom is going to David. And this is the first time that David is actually mentioned. Everybody knows that. We all know that. But this is the first time it's actually mentioned specifically to Saul. It says, the Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. You and your sons will die. There will be no dynasty of Saul. And Saul collapses, filled with fear and hopeless misery. Saul arrived fearing the Philistines, but ends up undone by the prophecy he was so eager to hear. And I want you to make very special note of this because this is very important. This is worldly sorrow. This is not godly repentance, okay? We never get that out of Saul. There is no godly repentance. He's just sad because of what's going to happen to him. Now, the question that you're probably asking yourself and you want to ask me to to tell you is, was this really Samuel? (laughs) And I can tell you that there are uh, very, uh, very trustworthy scholars on both sides of the issue. Personally, I come down on the side that this actually was Samuel. And this this is my reasons. Number one, scripture says it's Samuel. The words of Samuel are historically accurate and prophetically true. If you want to argue that God would never allow the dead to speak to the living, then you've got to take issue with uh, the transfiguration and Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. God can allow it, but only by his power and permission. And we're told in Scripture such conjuring is an abomination to the Lord, and it's forbidden, but nowhere does Scripture tell us that it can't actually happen. The Bible acknowledges the spirit realm, and the wiles of the evil one to deceive us. Verse 20 through 25. And there was no strength. Um, well, let me go back just to the start of verse 20. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, 
your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it and took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Once again, we have this kind of surreal situation. Saul is just given... Uh, the words that he is utterly condemned and the medium is kind of wondering if anybody's hungry. (laughs) Um, And the medium actually is presented as kind of the most sympathetic character in this entire story. She sees the terror and weakness of Saul and she seeks to comfort and provide for him. And verse 24 I find very interesting. It talks about there, it spends a lot of time explaining what she cooked and exactly how she cooked And it never talked at all about how she conjured up the dead. (laughs) So we have a cooking lesson, but there's no lesson in divination, which is a good thing, I'm sure. And she she prepares this feast fit for a king to a man who is unfit to be a king. So we've done our observation. We've done a little bit of interpretation. And now we want to move on to application. And I want to focus on this idea of being forsaken by God. Saul is the poster child for Romans 1. Saul believes a lie rather than believing the truth of God. And what did God do? God gave him up to his own understanding and his own desires. So what was Saul's nature? Well, he lived a life of partial obedience often acting on his own wisdom out of greed, jealousy, rather than the word of God. He inquired of God only in times of desperation, never truly seeking God. He was a man pleaser, influenced by the peer pressure of those around him. He lived in a constant state of doubt, fear, and disobedience rather than trusting and obeying. He cared much more about outward appearance than inward truth. He consistently sought his own good and glory, not the glory of God. And he admitted error, but he never truly repented. Saul was truly a tragic character, especially since he was the God-anointed king of Israel. And so we look at Saul, and then we think, well, what is our own nature? And we do a little personal introspection And I think what we'll find there is that we closely match with Saul. So, for me personally, do I live a life of partial obedience? Well, I confess that I come up drastically short when considering the command to love the Lord with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, and all my mind, and to love my neighbor as myself. Do I inquire of God only in times of desperation? Well, I confess that my prayer life lags, regularly lags in times of plenty and consistently is overwhelmed by supplication as opposed to adoration, thanksgiving, and confession. So, am I a man pleaser? Absolutely. 
I constantly strive for the approval of men, often succumbing to human influence. How about this idea of living in a state of doubt, fear? And I have to tell you, I confess to you that doubt and fear are my heavy companions. Oftentimes I trust, I have very little trust in God's goodness and almost no confidence at all in his covenant promises, even though God has poured out his blessing repeatedly on me and my family, I have little trust in his goodness and almost no confidence in his covenant promises. Do I care more about outward appearance? Absolutely. I confess that I am a closet Pharisee, overly concerned with the appearance of law-keeping rather than meaningful issues of the heart. And I could go on and on and on with my own confession to you. But let it say that as I look at Saul's nature and I do some introspection, I look at my nature, I am guilty on all counts, just like Saul. Perhaps you are too. So we're left with this question that we started with. If Saul was forsaken by God and we're just like Saul, can there be any hope for us, doesn't justice demand the same judgment? But the thing that we're forgetting here is God's nature. And Ephesians 2 tells us a little bit of God's nature in these words. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his, the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. Jesus, the truly righteous one, innocent of sin, bore the 